It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. England, 1650. As far as the world is concerned, the sun revolves around the earth, and the very concept of gravity is decades away from being proposed. In a small town in the country, a young boy screams at the top of his lungs to his mother that he's going to burn her house down. He didn't, to the benefit of the world, But the mother knew that there was something deeply troubling within her son. He had no friends. He was moody and preferred isolation. He would rather live inside his own head than engage with the social world around him. As he grew into adulthood, he pursued the one course of action that made sense to him, the study of the sciences. That boy was Sir Isaac Newton. To describe his contributions as merely significant is almost an understatement. His discoveries and experiments would lay the groundwork for much of our modern understanding of the universe. But they also often overshadow the fact that he had an extremely difficult youth, full of emotional trauma and difficult development. Most of Newton's personal writing is lost to history, and not by accident. He destroyed many of his own journals and robbed future generations of valuable insight into his thought processes. In this episode, we'll do our best to put all this into context. We're going to trace his actions, his accomplishments, and his setbacks, and hope we can do our best to figure out what exactly might have been going on in his head. Listen in as we take a deep dive into the life of the father of modern science, the one and only Sir Isaac Newton. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures on the Parcast Network. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing a man with an undeniable influence, Sir Isaac Newton. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we are doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Now, back to the life of Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton was born on Christmas Day, 1642, in a tiny town in England called Woolsthorpe. His life was a struggle from the outset. He was born premature and sickly. He was reportedly so tiny at birth that he could fit into a quart pot. His father, a comfortable but illiterate farmer and landowner, also named Isaac Newton, had passed away three months before he was born. For the first years of his life, Isaac was raised by his mother Hannah at Woldsthorpe Manor, the Newton family home. 
1646, when Isaac was almost three years old, Hannah met and married a man from a nearby town named Barnabas Smith. Barnabas was 63 at the time, considerably older than his new bride. Barnabas was a well-off reverend, and he had both money and land. But Hannah chose not to bring her son with her when she left Wolsthorpe to live with her new husband. Instead, Isaac was left at the manor in the care of his grandmother, while Hannah and Barnabas began a new family. For Isaac, the lack of a father figure and the separation from his mother at such a young age laid the seeds of separation anxiety and anger issues that he carried with him for the rest of his life. The occasional contact he did have with his mother and stepfather didn't help with Isaac's development. Isaac apparently hated Barnabas, and Barnabas was none too fond of his stepson either. The relationship between Isaac and his parental figures was extremely volatile. Years later, when writing about his childhood, Isaac would admit that he even threatened to burn Hannah and Barnabas's house down with them inside it. Isaac couldn't have been more than nine years old at the time. Uh, We know this because even though he didn't say how old he was in his account of the incident, Barnabas ultimately passed away in 1653 before Isaac reached 10. After Barnabas died, Hannah returned to Woolsthorpe and decided that it was as good a time as any to start actually being a mother to Isaac. Hannah decided that Isaac should grow up to be a farmer. And so she pulled him from school and sent him out to the fields to work the land. In her view, it was time for Isaac to take on the role of the man of the family. There's an alternate history where Isaac Newton spent his childhood overseeing his mother's land and never pursued his passion for education. Thankfully for all of us, things didn't turn out that way. Isaac hated farm work and made a point to be deliberately bad at farming. Whenever he was out from under the watchful gaze of his mother, he would simply curl up under the nearest tree with a book. Hannah quickly realized Isaac wouldn't be any help managing the land, and eventually he was permitted to go back to school around 1659. School for Isaac was the King's School in Grantham. It was too far from Woolsthorpe for Isaac to make the journey every day, so he boarded with William Clark, the town apothecary. Clark had three children, two boys and a girl. While Isaac apparently did not get on well with the boys, he became quite fond of William's daughter, Catherine. The two became very close. Isaac apparently even made furniture for Catherine's dolls. It was one of the earliest instances in which Isaac showed his aptitude for mechanics and engineering. Some historians have suggested that Isaac and Catherine may have even developed a romantic relationship as they grew up. But the validity of this claim is questionable, and the only evidence we have would suggest that they were simply good friends. That's unique in and of itself, because Isaac didn't have many friends. Small and studious, Isaac wasn't exactly popular at school, and was apparently tormented fairly regularly. And at least once, things even got violent. But Isaac wasn't the victim. One day at school, the other boys were bullying Isaac, and he snapped. He reportedly smashed his tormentor's face into the churchyard wall repeatedly, until he was finally pulled away. Not only did this incident not make him any more friends, but it also shows the early signs of his issues with aggression and anger. Still, Isaac was reportedly a good student. He became proficient in Latin, and although the school didn't provide much opportunity for him to learn arithmetic, Isaac showed early promise in that subject as well. 
Isaac completed his primary education at King's School in 1661, when he was 18. He was accepted to Trinity College at Cambridge, one of the most prestigious universities in the world at that time. Isaac's mother refused to pay for his college education. This meant that Isaac's enrollment at Cambridge was contingent on his being qualified as a subsizer. Students at Cambridge were separated into groups based on their financial relationship to the school. There were the pensioners, who paid an annual tuition, and there were the subsizers, who, as the name implies, subsidized their education by performing menial jobs for the university. Isaac worked as a servant for his wealthier classmates in order to pay his tuition. But he was undeterred by his circumstance. He arrived at Cambridge University in the fall of 1661, ready to learn. However, for the most part, his academic career progressed rather unremarkably. His grades were average, and they certainly didn't indicate that Isaac would go on to become one of the most revered mathematical geniuses in history. Even Isaac's mathematics professor, Isaac Barrow, found Newton's understanding of the philosopher Euclid to be sorely lacking. Little did Barrow know that Isaac's mediocre academic performance was due to the fact that Isaac was much more focused on his private research. At this time, Cambridge was operating as it had for the past several centuries. Professors there were stuck in the more traditional modes of viewing the universe, from the theory that the Earth was the center of our galaxy to discussing nature in more qualitative than quantitative terms. But by the time Isaac was a student at Cambridge, the scientific revolution was in full swing, and radical new theories and ideas were sweeping the intellectual societies of Europe. Isaac recognized that substantial change was coming to the field of scientific theory and research, and so he immersed himself in all the modern scientific texts he could find. He was particularly interested in the heliocentric philosophies of the universe, Namely, that the planets revolved around the sun, rather than the sun revolving around the earth. He also found the works of philosophers like Aristotle and Descartes both largely ignored by his school's curriculum. Descartes, in particular, proved to be a massive influence on Isaac's future work. In 1664, when Isaac was 21, he began writing what would become his first notable text. He entitled the work, Quaestiones Quidem Philosophicae, or Certain Philosophical Questions. Underneath the title, he wrote, Plato is my friend, Aristotle is my friend, but my best friend is truth. In the text, we can see that Isaac had fully outlined the most modern philosophical and mathematical theories of the universe that existed at the time. Like the heliocentric model of the universe, the early seeds of gravity, and more. And he was already starting to parse out where the ideas could be improved. He graduated from the university in 1665 without honors or distinction. He was ready to start his scientific career. But once again, something would stand in his way. Find out what after this. Now, back to the story. It was 1665. 22-year-old Isaac Newton had completed his education at Trinity College at Cambridge University and was ready to begin his scientific career as a researcher employed by the university. But some more pressing matters stood in the way. The city was dealing with an epidemic, one now known as the Great Plague of London. 
It was the worst outbreak of the plague since the Black Death over 300 years prior. London ended up losing 15% of its population. Cambridge was promptly shut down to prevent the spread of the disease. And that, unfortunately, meant that Isaac had no university at which to conduct his work. So he returned home to Woolsthorpe. He spent the next two years in near isolation, focusing on his studies. It seems that solitude fostered some of his best work. Isaac would later say, quote, For in those days I was in my prime of age for invention, and minded mathematics and philosophy more than at any time since. These two years proved to be some of the most productive of his entire career. It was during this time that he first conceived his method of fluxions, essentially the starting points of the system of calculus. So we have him to thank for that class in high school. Yes, but the work was revolutionary at the time. It combined geometry and algebra to compare the rate of change in one thing to the rate of change in another. He then worked on an essay entitled Of Colors, in which he would begin most of his work on the color spectrum. Isaac conducted multiple experiments on light and color, some of which were quite dangerous. One experiment had him sticking a pin behind his eye to see if it affected the way he saw color. That's some extreme and disturbing dedication. It was. Another involved staring at the sun's reflection in a mirror, after which he had to spend three days in a darkened room. But Isaac fully showed his genius in his next experiment, one of the most important ones he ever conducted. He shined a light through a small hole at a prism, which then refracted into a rainbow on a whiteboard on the other side. This was a significant discovery. At the time, it was believed that light was homogeneous, appearing as white in its pure form and as different colors only when it was refracted. What Newton proved was that light is, in fact, heterogeneous, that different colors travel at different wavelengths, different angles, etc., and that only when combined do they form white. In simple terms, Newton had just defined our modern understanding of the mechanics of light and color. In addition to his work in color, he also began researching the relationship between the motion of the moon and the other planets, which would be the start of his work on the laws of gravitation. His question was, what keeps the moon in its place? How does it avoid floating off into space while also avoiding crashing down to Earth? And what prompted him to ask this question? Well, you may have heard a certain story about an apple falling from a tree. As the legend goes, Isaac was at Woolsthorpe Manor, sitting under a tree reading a book, when an apple fell and hit him on the head. His irritation and the sudden shock of the impact turned to curiosity, and he found himself wondering what specific force pulls things down to Earth. The answer he would learn is gravity. Now, historians are unsure whether this specific event actually happened, but that's the story Isaac told in all of his later writings regarding the epiphany. The question of the apple and the force that applied to it drove Newton as he began his research into what is now regarded as some of the most significant scientific work in history. But it was also during this time that another catastrophe hit London. On September 2nd, 1666, London was struck by what is now called the Great Fire, a massive outbreak of fire that decimated most of central London. Londoners fled to the River Thames in boats to avoid the flames. They were unsure how long the fire would last and how much of the city it would take with it. 
the fire roared on for four days, laying waste to much of London. People watched with horror as their homes and the city's history were reduced to ash. By the time the fire finally burned out on September 6th, more than 13,000 homes had been destroyed, about 100,000 were left homeless, and an unknown number had perished. The city and much of Cambridge University had been destroyed. There is one small silver lining, though. The fire had destroyed thousands of rat-infested homes and killed thousands of rats. This contributed to the plague finally dying out in Greater London. With two major tragedies safely behind them, the city of London was ready to rebuild. Cambridge reopened in 1667, and Isaac, then 23, returned to London to continue his work. He knew he needed the resources of a major university to continue his research, so he had to get a position at the school. He had his eye on Junior Fellow, which would grant him an income and housing in addition to research opportunities. But this position was usually reserved for those with political connections and influence. Isaac had neither. He took the test anyway in September 1667, and a month later, the university was unable to deny his skills and officially elected him a junior fellow. And just one year after that, he became a senior fellow upon obtaining his Master of Arts degree. This meant that Isaac no longer had to tutor, which freed up his time for more research pursuits. Now with the full resources of the prestigious university behind him and time to spare, Isaac continued his private research. He developed an interest in alchemy, which was essentially an early form of chemistry. He also worked on perfecting something called the reflecting telescope. Similar types of telescopes had existed for years, and a man named Robert Hooke had invented the first reflecting telescope some years earlier. But in February 1668, when he was 24, Isaac created what would be by far the most effective version, and he built it all by hand. His telescope could magnify images by as much as 40 times. Well, the next year, in 1669, he succeeded his old professor Isaac Barrow, the one who had found his work lacking those years before, as professor of mathematics at Trinity College. But it was the reflecting telescope that finally started to get Isaac some attention from the larger scientific community. In 1671, when Isaac was 27, word of his invention spread all the way to the Royal Society. The Royal Society, a very prestigious organization of scientists who had a direct connection with the monarchy, asked to see the telescope and welcomed Isaac into their organization. The next year, in 1672, Isaac decided to present the Royal Society his paper on light and color to see what they thought. In this instance, the Society's approval would be a major boost for his career. And it worked. The paper was well-received and reached a notable audience, but the newfound notoriety meant Isaac also opened himself up to criticism from his fellow scientists. Shortly after the publication, Newton was contacted by a man named Robert Hooke. As one of the leaders of the Royal Society, Robert Hooke considered himself the master in all subjects surrounding optics. He was also the man who invented the first reflective telescope. Hooke saw that Newton's telescope was an improvement on his own design. Rather than embrace his fellow scientist, Hooke lashed out and released a public critique of Newton's work. 
he condescendingly called Newton's theories into question and attempted to pick apart Newton's claims at every turn. Word quickly made it back to Isaac. Isaac wasn't one to take criticism well. Ever since his struggles in childhood, Isaac had shown serious trouble with anger issues and the ability to control his emotions. He publicly responded to Hook, and this led to a very bitter, very public back and forth between the two men. Eventually, Isaac couldn't take it anymore. Less than a year after publishing the paper, he cut off contact with most of the outside world and withdrew into near isolation. Not much is known about what Isaac did during this time, as he remained in isolation and had little correspondence with anyone. But we can assume he did the one thing he always did, even when his emotional struggles got the better of him. He worked. A few years later, in 1675, when Isaac was around 32, he made a rare trip from his home to London. While there, he heard that Robert Hooke had started to come around to Newton's theories on optics, apparently unable to continue denying their accuracy. Isaac felt that Hooke had finally embraced him after years of public criticism. The sense of acceptance emboldened Isaac to release a second paper on colors. Later that same year, he released another new paper titled An Hypothesis Explaining the Properties of Light. Despite the title, it was generally a paper on the system of nature. It was well received, but again, criticism came knocking on Isaac's door. The paper had come to the attention of a group of English Jesuits who wrote Isaac to criticize the work, and it launched a back and forth. The bitter correspondence went on for a few years until 1678, when Isaac was 35. That year, he snapped and suffered a complete nervous breakdown. Once again, he withdrew into isolation, only engaging in correspondence when initiated by others. And things only got worse. In 1679, his mother Hannah passed away. Despite his fraught relationship with his mother, 36-year-old Isaac was devastated by her death. He returned to Woolsthorpe to manage the estate and funeral arrangements and remained outside of public discourse for the next five years. Unfortunately, we don't know exactly what was going through his mind at the time, as we don't have any personal records, but we do know that during this period of isolation, he once again threw himself into his work. It was during this years-long period of mourning and solitude that Isaac completed his seminal text. In 1686, at the age of 42, Isaac submitted to the Royal Society, his Philosophiae Naturalis Principia Mathematica, or in English published as Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy. The work has been described by historians as Isaac's masterpiece, serving as his attempt to describe the universal laws of motion. Isaac believed that all of nature is made of moving particles, and his pursuit of that belief led to his discovery of the laws of all of nature. The most significant theory to come from this groundbreaking text may sound familiar. Newton's Three Laws of Motion. Law 1. A body remains in a state of rest until it is compelled to change that state by a force impressed on it. For example, the force of gravity pulling an apple from a tree. Law 2. The change in motion is proportional to the force impressed on it, so that apple will fall at a rate consistent with the force of gravity. Law 3. To every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. 
An apple falls from the tree and strikes a young mathematician on the head. The force of the impact pushes back on the apple and causes it to bounce away from the bruised skull. Newton also finalized his understanding of gravity in Philosophiae Naturalis Principia Mathematica. He stated that every object in the universe attracts every other object. The strength of the gravitational force is determined by the mass of the two objects and the space between them. Thus, we can fall to Earth, but the moon can't. Despite being much, much heavier, it's too far away. This all may sound like old news now, but at the time, these theories were groundbreaking. The text was acclaimed by the Royal Society and the public at large, but not all members were equally excited. Isaac's old rival, Robert Hooke, promptly accused him of plagiarism. He argued that Isaac got much of his work from the correspondences between the two men that had transpired over the past few years. This claim has been found to have no basis in any evidence, and Hooke's career and health were mostly in decline at the time, so it appears to have simply been a last-ditch grab for attention. But Hooke's accusations were enough to infuriate Isaac, who swiftly responded. Isaac promptly went through his manuscript and removed every single reference of his correspondence with Hooke and any reference to his work. The name Robert Hooke was completely erased from the trailblazing text. In hindsight, Hooke likely would be looked on more kindly by scientists and historians if he had just kept his mouth shut. Principia brought Isaac a newfound level of fame. Suddenly, a whole wave of young scientists rising up the British academic track became budding Newtonians. Isaac, who had never been particularly successful with friendships and had no confirmed romantic relationships to speak of, actually enjoyed his newfound celebrity. The former farm boy, who had been abandoned by his mother and bullied by his classmates, was suddenly a hero in the scientific community. Although it should be noted that fame didn't completely change Isaac, he remained just as serious and studious as ever. His assistant, Humphrey Newton, no relation, is quoted as saying he only saw Isaac laugh once, and it was about geometry. Apparently, Humphrey had lent a friend a copy of Euclid, a book on geometry. Upon returning it, the friend asked what the point of the text was. That question made Isaac quite merry, as his assistant said. Apparently, by asking what the point was, it was very clear to Isaac that his friend didn't get the point at all. Over the next few years, Isaac met and befriended many of the most prominent minds of the time, including the famous philosopher John Locke. And in 1869, when he was 46, Newton was sent to represent the University of Cambridge in the British Parliament and was even invited to dine with the king. His newfound fame and wealth granted Newton access to powerful figures and the great philosophers of the day. But what he enjoyed the most was acting as a patron of sorts to the rising class of young scientists. One of these young scientists would allegedly become the closest friend Isaac ever had over the course of his life. And rumors would persist that the young man and Newton were more than friends. We'll discuss that relationship right after this. Now, back to the story. After Isaac Newton published his groundbreaking text, Principia, in 1686, his entire life changed. He became a celebrity practically overnight, and he was thrust into new circles, socializing with royalty, renowned philosophers, and adoring fans. 
1689, two years after Principia was released, he met one young fan who became a major figure of his later adult life, a Swiss mathematician named Nicola Fatio de Duillier. Nicola was 25, 20 years younger than Isaac. Despite the age difference, the two became close friends. Nicola was starstruck by the older man, and Newton certainly seemed to enjoy the attention. While Isaac always maintained that he was celibate his entire life, there are some historians who suspect that he and Nicola may have been lovers. Even if they were never physically intimate, there was certainly an intense emotional intimacy between them. There are some surviving correspondences between the two men, and these writings paint the picture of an extremely close relationship. Nicola would frequently write Isaac letters, and Isaac would respond with gifts and accommodation in his home and nearby properties. In one letter, Nicola wrote to Isaac, quote, I could wish, sir, to live all my life, or the greatest part of it, with you. It was a touching sentiment, and while this was not totally uncommon at the time, it definitely falls on the more romantic end of normal correspondence between two male friends in the later 17th century. In another letter, Nicola wrote, quote, The reasons I should not marry will probably last as long as my life. Isaac had spent his entire life unable to form close relationships. Nicola seems to be the one exception. But their apparent courtship was destined to end tragically. In 1693, Nicola fell ill, and then family and financial problems meant he might have to return to Switzerland. The possibility of losing the closest friend he'd ever had was difficult for Isaac, and his letters to Nicola reportedly got more and more emotional. Isaac even offered to pay for Nicola to move to Cambridge so that they could stay close to one another. Nicola didn't take Isaac up on that offer. The friendship seemed to suddenly break off. All correspondences stopped, and as far as history is concerned, the two never spoke again. Well, to this day, no one knows for sure what prompted the ending of the relationship, as there is no surviving evidence. But historians have described Nicola as an emotional and boastful young man. And as we know, Isaac had his own emotional troubles. It's certainly possible the personalities and their passions clashed. Whatever the reason, the schism was traumatic for Isaac. In late 1693, just after Nicola's departure, Isaac suffered the second nervous breakdown of his life. His reaction was different this time. Rather than return to the isolation of Woolsthorpe, as he had in the past, Isaac instead began sending his friends strange and accusatory letters out of the blue. Samuel Pepys, the former president of the Royal Society, received a letter from Isaac informing him that they would no longer be seeing each other. John Locke, the famous philosopher that Isaac had met, received a letter in which he was accused of attempting to entangle Isaac with women. Both men were understandably concerned about the bizarre and somewhat deranged letters. They went so far as to say they feared for his, quote, discomposure in head or mind or both. There are a few theories on what could have prompted the breakdown. Some historians believe the stress of more criticism of his essays, overwork, or even mercury exposure from his years of alchemy research could have prompted the breakdown. But by far the most prominent belief is that the end of his relationship with Nicola was the cause. Based on the timing, Newton's history of troubled relationships, and the fact that he seemingly recovered a short while later, it makes sense. 
After a couple of years, Isaac seemed to be back to normal, but his life would never be the same. He wanted out of Cambridge, the university where he had based most of his three-decade-long career. He seemed ready to leave his scientific pursuits behind. Science had been everything to Isaac, and it brought him money, fame, and legions of fans. But it had also brought Nicola into his life. Uh, Maybe the association and the painful memories were just too much for him to bear. Isaac received a new career opportunity in 1696, when he was 52. He was offered the position of Warden of the Mint, which was essentially the head of England's national treasury. He accepted, relocating to London. Although Warden of the Mint was primarily a ceremonial position, Isaac, ever the worker, treated it as a full-time responsibility. Under Isaac's direction, the National Mint came down hard on counterfeiters, trying them to the fullest extent of the law. Isaac also helped design new coins that would be harder to copy. Although his most creative scientific years were behind him, his position in a high governmental office meant that Isaac was able to live in London with a comfortable existence and a high social status. For the next several years, he continued his work with the Mint And in 1703, at the age of 60, he was elected president of the Royal Society. He only accepted the position after the previous president passed away. That president was none other than his longtime rival, Robert Hooke. Isaac enjoyed running the Royal Society. With Robert Hooke dead and buried, he even felt confident enough to release some of his old unpublished essays on optics, and he continued to be recognized for his discoveries. In 1705, at the age of 62, Isaac Newton received one of the greatest honors of his life when he was knighted by Queen Anne at his old University of Cambridge. He was the first scientist to receive such an honor, and thus Isaac Newton, the simple son of a farmer from Woolsthorpe, became Sir Isaac Newton, one of the wealthiest and most respected men in London. Isaac spent his final years present and active, He continued his work with the Royal Society and published edited editions of his older research. However, he seemed done with formative research and did not publish any text regarding new discoveries. Even then, Isaac Newton managed to start up more feuds with his fellow scientists, including one Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, a German philosopher who claimed to have invented calculus before Isaac. Isaac Newton didn't take this lying down. He began writing memoirs, documenting his achievements in 1725 at age 82. These texts provide the majority of what we know about Newton's life. But as he wrote them himself, some historians do wonder if they can take all of it with complete authenticity. He was, after all, a man with questionable emotional stability, a contentious relationship with criticism, and a definite penchant for privacy. And he maintained that privacy up until the end. The reason we know as little as we do about Isaac's personal life is due to the fact that in the final years of his life, Isaac burned many of his personal papers. Most historians believe these papers either referred to his work in alchemy, still somewhat controversial at the time, or very possibly to his complicated and largely unknown personal life. Maybe that's why no one knows what truly happened between him and Nicola. By 1727, when he was 84, Isaac had fallen ill. 
He suffered from everything from kidney stones to inflammation of the lungs and a case of gout that had confined him to a wheelchair. On March 20th, 1727, Isaac Newton died in his sleep in his London home. On March 28th, his body was laid in state at Westminster Abbey, an honor reserved for only the most esteemed figures of the British Empire. At the funeral held April 4th, 1727, dukes and earls acted as pallbearers. Leading members of the Royal Society attended the ceremony. Four years later, in 1731, a monument was placed in Westminster Abbey that remains to this day. The inscription in Latin reads, Mortals rejoice that there has existed such and so great an ornament of the human race. Sir Isaac Newton's influence on science and the way we interact with the world around us cannot be overstated. His discoveries laid the groundwork for much of our modern scientific understanding and exploration. But he was also a troubled man, suffering a difficult childhood, unable to form successful adult relationships, and quick to anger at the slightest criticism. There was certainly a lot going on in that amazing mind, and there is much we still don't know, as he was not one to let people see inside it often. We will leave you with his own words. Quote, I know not what I appear to the world, but to myself I seem to have been like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself in now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Historical Figures, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Bill Holmes, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Nick Brovender and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.